This is Beyond the Coat, the life of a physician, a podcast to share the wisdom of experienced physicians to inspire, educate, and enrich the lives of listeners. I'm Lily. And I'm Kristen. We are fourth-year medical students at the Wright State University Boonshoft School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio. The opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of Wright State University Boonshoft School of Medicine or any other organization or university. Please do not use this podcast for medical advice, but instead reach out to your doctor regarding medical concerns. Welcome to our first podcast. We have a very special guest with us here today. Dr. John Donnelly is an inspiring family physician and longtime faculty member of the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Dr. Donnelly, thank you for being willing to be with us on the show today. Thank you. Kristen and I are both very excited to have you and have known you for several years throughout our time at Boonshoft. We'd like to start with something that we might have found at the beginning of your med school application essay. The reason that you went into medicine, what sparked your interest? Well, you know, what I wrote then and how I would phrase it now are a little bit different. When I um, wrote my personal statement for my med school application, it was basically on the premise that I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a beneficial impact on their lives, their well-being. And where it's different now is that instead of saying I want to help people, it becomes I want to serve people. Because I think the distinction there is helping is somebody who has more knowledge, capability, power, is assisting somebody who is less knowledgeable, capable, or powerful. And I think that service implies that we're truly a team, a partnership of equal uh, collaborators, so there's not an upper and lower uh, level playing field. So that would be the distinction. And I think going back to when I was applying to med school or even before that, my mom was a nurse. So some of her clinical stories of how she shared with me, she worked in the ICU of a small town hospital, how doctors made an impact on people's well-being probably reinforced the initial seeds that were there for me. So having your mom um, as a nurse growing up probably gave you a little bit of exposure to the medical field um, as a child. And so based on your expectations prior to med school and what your actual experience was, Will you tell us a bit about your experience through med school and as an early physician and how that related to what you had anticipated? Sure. Um, you know, even though the seeds were there, that was not my first uh, career goal. I wanted to be a hockey player. In my uh, senior year in high school, I actually was invited to uh, play up uh, in the Ontario Hockey League, the Oshawa Generals, uh, during my senior year, so I dropped out of school. Well, I didn't drop out of school. I ended up switching to go up to Canada. Uh, but after two weeks, my services were no longer needed. So career plan B became a, a uh, more important option. I got cut from the hockey team. So, uh, you know, the good Lord works in strange ways because I think I'm a much better physician and teacher than I ever would have been as a hockey player. <laughs> so I, even though that wasn't my first choice. So my journey through medicine was really, after that, uh, it became, okay, I really need to focus on where I, do I want to go to college, um, where will that open doors, because at that point I was thinking of medicine or dentistry, I really didn't have a, back in that day, I graduated from high school in 77, 
we didn't have nearly the exposure to healthcare and medicine that almost all of you guys have now. I mean, we weren't observing in emergency rooms or shadowing or anything like that, the vast majority of us. And even though my mom was a nurse, I never had that opportunity. Or maybe to phrase it better, I never took advantage of any opportunity if we were there. So uh, I went to college at the University of Dallas. Up here, I can't say UD because the University of Dayton. (laughs) That's what we called it down there. And obviously, that was kind of my break from playing hockey because there wasn't going to be any real hockey uh, down in Texas at that point. (laughs) So I went there. was a, entered in as a pre-med major, and that's what I graduated as. Um, went to medical school at University of Texas in Houston. Uh, graduated there in 1985, and much like Wright State University School of Medicine changing its name with Mr. Boonshoff donating a bunch of money, so it's the Boonshoff School of Medicine. Same thing at um, UT Houston is now the University of Texas McGovern Medical School at Houston because of the McGovern family philanthropic benefactors that have their name in the med school as well. So I did my residency in Houston at the Memorial uh, Family Medicine Residency from 1985 to 88, and that's really where I learned how to become a doctor. Um, You know, med school, I think, for me was acquiring knowledge and clinical skills, but learning how to serve patients, advocate for them, write orders where the buck stops with you was my residency. And then I, from there, I uh, joined the faculty at the medical school and the residency program and was there from 88 to 97 until I came up here to Wright State. And the reason I came up to Wright State was my primary role model and mentor, Dr. Mark Klassen, who died a couple years back. He became the chair up here in 1992, and we always kind of had a a bit of an agreement that... Mm. uh, if and when the time arose, I might be able to come up here. My wife is from Indianapolis, and we had one child. I found out when I was coming up here on the plane, 35,000 feet up, uh, that we were expecting our second. I was coming here for the job. <laughs> so getting closer to family, with Kim's family being Indianapolis, my family being Massachusetts, uh, that was kind of how I ended yeah. up where I am today. Okay. Been here since 97 and loved it almost every minute of it. So. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you here in Ohio. It sounds like Texas enjoyed having you there, too. So during our journey through school and as an early physician, there can be many awards, scholarships, experiences with patients that give us a sense of pride. What are you proudest of during your time as a physician? You know, the, the thing that that I am most proud of is that I think the vast majority of days and the vast majority of encounters with patients or learners, I have fulfilled my covenant of service. Um, you know, so, I mean, when a patient or a family member thanks them for or thanks me for making some timely diagnosis or intervention that helps them recover from a, you know, a serious illness or a catastrophic injury, it doesn't get any better than that. But those moments are relatively few and far between. It's just the, the multiple interactions every day where somebody says, thank you. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, I think because of that, that has kind of helped me mature and evolve from what I I mentioned earlier, that residency is when I really learned how to become a doctor. And it was probably my first couple years of faculty and large extent to Mark Klassen um, that I learned the notion of patient-centered care because I, I think we in med school 
are taught from a doctor-centered perspective. You know, where you read the textbook or the article and it's written <laughs> by physicians and it tells us how to, the questions to ask and the things to seek and exam and how to formulate a differential diagnosis and how to order lab work and prescribe treatment. And that's all from the doctor's perspective. And hearing how an illness or an injury or any other symptomatology impacts a patient and their family, we don't always get that in med school. We certainly don't get it from the textbooks. Um, and that, you know, that's part of what we learn through our direct observation when you hit the clerkships or even if you're at reach out uh, Dayton or anything like that, serving patients who tend to fall through the cracks. That's probably would be your, your initial um, exposure to that. It's that notion of patient-centered care. And I would say the same thing as a teacher. You know, hopefully I've done a good job being a student or a resident-centered teacher rather than just for my own agenda. So. Most certainly you have. Um, and so going through having so much experience in practicing patient-centered care, um, I'm sure you've learned a lot from your patients over the years and, and students and residents as well. Um, what would you say are some of the most important lessons you've learned along this journey and what experiences um, allowed you to gain the knowledge that you got from those lessons? Yeah, and that, that's such a profound question. And I'm going to answer it maybe a little bit off the path of being a physician. Uh, this was more of a personal experience, but I think it directly, mm-hmm. um, you know, links up to what I do day in and day out as a physician educator. But I think when I was younger, certainly through college, med school, probably I first started figuring this out during my clinical clerkships. But if I were to, if I were facing a decision or needing to make a choice, I tended to frame that decision or choice and how is this going to impact me? Um, what does this mean for me? And I think what I've learned through observing wonderful role models, both in the medical profession and outside, was that there was a selflessness to them that I needed to add prepositions to that question. So instead of saying, what does this mean for me or how is this going to impact for me? adding a prepositional phrase or two. How is this going to impact me in relationship to my family, relationship to my friends, my community, my God? And I found that I could come up with drastically different choices or courses of action based on adding those prepositional phrases. Now, I couldn't have articulated it in those words until I heard a priest uh, at a homily at Mass one day down at St. Michael's Parish in Houston Father Lawrence Connolly, and he basically was the one who, who specifically said, add the phrases, uh, the prepositional phrases. And it was like, you know, that just struck such a deep chord within my heart that that was probably my most profound um, life lesson. So. That sounds like an incredible piece of advice. So I've had the joy of working with many physicians that have truly inspired me with their dedication and care of patients. I've wondered if you've had a similar experience and would share with us a story from someone you've found inspirational in your life. Yeah, I've been privileged to have just so many powerful people that have taken their time out to maybe take take me under their wing or to teach me or mentor me. But I mentioned earlier the, the good Dr. Klassen. Um, I first met him 
1986 when I was a second year residency. He had just joined the faculty down at the University of Texas, Houston. And it was from him that I learned for the first time what I would consider to be basic tenets and fundamental principles of what I do as a family physician or as a caring and competent physician regardless of specialty. The notion of patient-centered care that I touched on earlier, well, what does that mean? Well, what I learned from Mark was that it is a, an ongoing partnership with a patient or their loved ones and or their loved ones because as you get closer to a patient's death, oftentimes the family members and their loved ones become more, quote, my patient, unquote, than the patient himself or herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ongoing partnership, which talks about setting goals mutually, rather than my prescribing somebody what their health behavior or their goals should be, negotiating outcomes. So I might say, I would really think it'd be in your best interest to do this intervention, stop smoking, exercise more, you know, uh, cut down on your drinking, lose weight, whatever it may be, but maybe the patient isn't ready to do one or all of those things, so how do we maybe tie into, um, you know, what, what his or her goal is at the moment, what maybe they feel most equipped to, how do you play to that person's strengths rather than chastise them for their weaknesses or flaws. And I think a lot of that now is what we call motivational interviewing. I didn't have a Mm -hmm. name for it back then. Um, But I think, you know, some of those lessons, uh, Dr. Klassen taught me that the medically correct decision isn't always the best decision for your patient. Mm. Um, And I could give you several examples on that right off the top of my head. Um, so from that perspective, Mark has been my, my, my chief role model. Over the last 10 or 15 years, and, and you guys both are familiar with Dr. Rachel Remen, who founded her, you know, the, the Healers Art course and Finding Meaning in Medicine. But uh, Rachel is, you know, has really driven home to me that sense of finding your sense of purpose in what you do. And from her, I have learned... You know, that patients, any person I meet um, has gifts, has talents, has knowledge that I don't have. Um, so she, through, through reading some of her works and through teaching in both the healer's art and the finding meaning in medicine, it has really broadened my horizons. I've, I've learned how to recognize courage in patients or students. I've learned how to recognize heroism, and I've learned how to draw inspiration from them. And that has probably kept me so enthusiastic about being a physician and teacher more than anything else. So, and that, that would, and there's a question later on, I think you're going to mm-hmm. come up about <laughs> advice to give to people. So I'll be, yeah, I'll be <laughs> tying back into that down the road. So Excellent. So it sounds like through your reflectiveness and perspective that you've had a very rewarding experience in medicine. However, all of us involved and most of those who aren't, we all know and understand that being in medicine involves a lot of sacrifices, some of which are a lot more difficult than others. Um, And so we're interested to hear which sacrifices were most difficult for you to make in pursuing this career. Um, And were there any sacrifices that you regret? Yeah, this is another great question. Um, before I give you my experience, I have to be 
very honest and upfront. Uh, I am not the expert in achieving balance um, between one's professional responsibilities and personal life. So if I, you know, if I try to come off as that, I'd be insincere. I mean, probably what I find myself doing is just juggling a bunch of balls and trying to keep the ones that are most important that day from falling to the floor mm-hmm. or rolling away from me. And, and um, maybe that's not the best image, but it's the, the best one I could come up with when um, I was thinking of this question. Um, the sacrifices that I've made really involve missing out on important life events. So whether that be family members, close friends, um, eventually patients and, and students and colleagues, but they're, you know, weddings, birth of children, funerals. I mean, I, I have tried to go to as many of my patients' funerals as I could attend, uh, but there were some times when you have a, a you know, a, a full office schedule, you're making rounds in the hospital, or you're scheduled to, to be teaching with, uh, you know, for the entire class, and you can't duck out of those either. So I can't make them all, but that's that's always been a priority of me. The times that I've regretted things, other than missing out on that, is when I feel like maybe I took an easy way out, or perhaps I was I succumbed to what I would call the seductive aspects of being a physician. And what I mean by that is when a, when a patient thanks me for saving their life, whether that's truly accurate or it's, a, it's, it's an exaggeration, that is such a neat, uplifting feeling that if I kind of put the cart before the horse and I'm focused on that, what I would call the reward, and all of a sudden that becomes my goal, it'd be easy to miss out on other important life events because I want to make that commitment and, and work that much harder so I can get that thank you again. And so that, that's kind of pointed out to me that sometimes it's easy for me, and I think for a lot of us, to get the goal or our objective mixed up with the reward. So, you know, you're, you're in a clerkship and you're getting ready to apply for residence and you say, well, I really want to do well in this clerkship or this rotation because I want to, you know, I want an honors in this, in this course. Well, the honors shouldn't be our goal for the course. It should be the reward if we perform and master the knowledge and the clinical skill set and whatever else we need. And then the reward is the good grade. But I think there are plenty of times that a lot of us, not just me, end up getting that a little bit convoluted and all of a sudden the reward becomes our goal. And that's, that's where the blinders have come on for me where I've regretted some of the sacrifices probably because I, I was a little bit misguided. <laughs> that's great. It sounds like there have been some sacrifices that you've gone through medical school and throughout residency, throughout being a physician. Um, kind of similar to that, what was one of the most difficult challenges that you overcame during this time? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm one of those Irish Catholic folks that uh, need to feel that I've fulfilled my commitments. Uh, and if I don't, I have an incredible sense of guilt. So the, the notion that I've let somebody down, I've disappointed them, I've not fulfilled my commitment um, is, is um, very distressing for me. So if I look back on the times that I've been most ashamed, it's really been, been based on some of those things. Um, 
I grew up in a family that we had plenty of conflict and disruption. So my, my dad uh, dealt with alcoholism. I'm the oldest of six kids. My mother um, really kept our family together. Um, she, you know, she worked the night shift uh, um, at the hospital um, up in, you know, for years and years until after I had gone to college and then she started doing treadmill tests in the, in the stress lab where she had a, a day job at that point. But um, so having my mother and, and father on different schedules and a lot of conflict and turmoil that were going there was something they have to overcome. And uh, when my folks, my folks divorced uh, between my junior and senior year of college, um, and being the oldest of the six kids, uh, that was hard because I was the only one who was out of the home at that point, and I felt that I owed something back to the family. So I came very close to uh, dropping out of school. And I talked to my soccer coach and didn't get a whole lot of support uh, about my contemplating dropping out. Um, talked to my pre-med advisor and, and was, was felt very supported by her. Um, and eventually decided to stay um, because one of my teachers at UD had pointed out to me that if I were to have dropped out, I probably would have really messed up my parents because they both would have felt so much guilt about the disruption in their relationship adversely impacting my education and chance to succeed, and that's what they had invested a lot in. So it was a, a different kind of perspective that I had heard, um, and that really kind of helped me not be guilty about making that choice. But in terms of maybe a life event that was, you know, the most adversity that I dealt with, that was probably it. Wow. And that must have been, as you stated, exceptionally difficult to overcome, too, at such a young age. Um, before you, you know, really discovered a lot of the coping mechanisms and, and things that I'm sure you have um, later in life, just going through that so young, kind of on the opposite spectrum, um, we also wanted to hear about what are some of your happiest memories or greatest joys that you found in life. Yeah, and I've been very blessed because my life has been full of happy moments and, and, and joyful events. I mean, obviously, marrying my wife, Kim, 25 and a half years ago, and my wife's an amazing woman, has high standards and everything in life, but husbands, um, so one, <laughs> one poor decision and really put her life asunder. Then the birth of our three kids, Mary Grace in 96, Erin in 97, and James in 99. So Lily and I were actually talking about this right before we started the podcast. Uh, Mary Grace is uh, just starting law school at Notre Dame. Erin um, graduated from the University of Cincinnati back in uh, May, and she's embarking on a career as a professional ballet dancer. So she's out at uh, State Street Ballet Company in Santa Barbara, California. And then our son Jimmy is um, starting his second year at Purdue tomorrow. So, um, wow. and, you know, very proud of them that, that they bring me great joy. From a, from a professional standpoint, you know, again, when you have a patient thank you, um, that is as uplifting as it can be. When you see a patient overcome their illnesses or whatever other disadvantageous circumstances that life has thrown at them, uh, that is inspiring. 
And likewise with students and residents, when you see them figure something out or make that next step or much like you guys now, you're going to be getting ready in just a few short months and you're going to have the MD after your name and you're going to be writing your own orders without having somebody sign on you um, or, you know, reviewing that and signing on you necessarily and knowing you guys as I do, if you have a question, you'll find the answer rather than wing it. But those are some of those uh, sacred moments that just are incredibly fulfilling and, and, and bring me great joy. Sounds like you've had a lot of those memories then. That's oh, great. all the time, man. That's awesome. I was kind of curious. You gave a really awesome presentation before our clinician ceremony, the ceremony before our third year of medical school when we kind of dedicate ourselves again to caring for patients after spending a couple years in the classroom. And I really found your story about taking step very inspirational. Would you mind sharing that with us? The, the step one? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was actually one of the things I had down here is difficult challenges, too. Uh, so academically, I was not uh, the, uh, the, the, the top of my class in med school. And I think, like, a, you know, as a lot of us deal with in med school, and I assume it's true for a lot of other graduate and professional schools, so many of us are used to either excelling or doing quite well academically. You know, we're, we're near the top or at the top of our class. And then we get to a place like med school where everybody comes from that, and all of a sudden I found myself to be barely average or struggling to be average. And that was, uh, that was humbling. It was challenging. Um, and at times it was scary. So the step one that Lily's alluding to was the end of my, our second year, just as you guys do at the USMLE. Or the, you know, back then, we didn't call it the United States Medical Licensing Exam. It was the National Board of Medical Examiners, but it was the same thing. It was part one, and it was the basic sciences. And um, we took it at the end of our second year, but we didn't have time off to study. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. We had a couple weeks off, but we didn't have the block off that, fortunately, most med students offer their students now. And I failed it. And I was amazed at my classmates who were so talented and so smart and so knowledgeable, how many of them had also failed it. So I mean, I the saying misery loves company, I guess there's some truth to that because I felt like I was a bit of a, uh, uh, an outsider. I didn't have what it takes, um, maybe even a pariah, and to see some other folks who I really respected kind of in the same boat, at least help hold me up a little bit. Um, so then uh, when we, we, this was before electronic testing and scores, so we get our score back in the U.S. mail uh, six weeks after we took it when I found out I failed it. And I was on my first clerkship, which was surgery. So the school administration removed me from the clerkship, and I had to take it again. And at that time, it was only offered twice. It was offered like in, whether it was late May or early June, and then it was offered the first week in August. So by the time I found out the score, it was only two weeks before it was due again. So I was trying to cram to, to prepare for the second test and failed it the second time. So what was interesting is being in med school in Texas, we were one of three states at that time that you didn't need the national board you didn't have to pass the National Board of Medical Examiners to get your license because hmm. we had what was called the Federal Licensing Examiner, FLEX, and the USMLE is now a combination of those two, so it's 
carries over all 50 states. But I needed to pass that test to graduate from med school. So if I failed it the third time, I was going to get the boot. And so I ended up taking it again, which was June the following year, so literally right at the end of my third year, and barely squeaked by and passed it. So when you look at so many of our colleagues in your year and over the years, I mean, so many of them, their biggest academic challenge in med school is, is, is that step one of the USMLE. So I shared that story because I know how challenging it was for me and how dumb I felt. So I thought that maybe just by sharing that, that can support and prop people up. Because I figure I haven't turned out to be all that bad of a physician, despite those academic uh, um, difficulties. And um, plenty of students who have trouble with the step one end up being wonderful physicians and outstanding educators in their future and their career. So I never thought I would have been happy to have had that happen to me while it was happening. But looking back at it, it's actually one of the best things that did happen to me because it's helped me connect with so many learners over the years. Mm-hmm. I find it truly inspiring the way you're able to look back on past adversities and find ways to be grateful for them because they offered you the opportunity for the growth that you experienced. Is there anything, and you've been talking about all sorts of things that, that you're grateful for throughout our conversation here today, the family and the experiences you had growing up, is there anything that you haven't mentioned yet that you feel you are most grateful for in your life that you would like to mention? Yeah, I mean, in a word, it's people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've been blessed to meet so many wonderful folks, my family, my friends. I mean, the guys I played soccer with at the University of Dallas are still my closest friends. I will be heading down there in October to, uh, to spend some time with a couple of them again. Colleagues patients. So many of my patients have become friends. Um, You guys, you know, the students, the residents over the years, and so many of you become colleagues and friends. I mean, it's uh, it's just awesome. And and I guess to sum it up, it just, to me, it's the presence of the good Lord in my life, in our lives. And I think the other thing I'm most grateful for is the opportunity to serve, both as a physician caregiver and as a, as a teacher. So um, each, each night you know, when I go to sleep, I, I will say the prayer for thank you for blessing me with the people and the, and the opportunities. Sure. There's been a lot of great people you've impacted throughout the years, so definitely a lot to be grateful for. And it sounds like you initially sort of went into academic medicine. That was where your career sort of started. Was that how you originally planned it, or what, what, how has your career been different from you initially imagined? Yeah, no, I'm smiling because... Uh, you're absolutely right. I went directly from residency to serve in the faculty, but no, that was not how I had planned it. And in fact, in my personal statement for my residency program, I specifically said I did not want to be an, an academician. <laughs> and what I meant by that was kind of the ivory tower scholar. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a scholar. Yes, I'm in academics, but I'm a, I'm a physician and I'm an educator. I'm certainly not a scholar. Um, but it's kind of funny that what you write in a personal statement a few years later completely changes. And thank, thank goodness no one held me to that. <laughs> now, how I ended up in academics, it was really a, a combination of a couple of things. Number one was I found that I loved teaching. And I could have done that. Not, I didn't necessarily need academics to do that because so much of your 
setting goals and negotiating outcomes with patients is, quote, patient education, although I would say it's more than just education. It's connecting at, you know, non-cognitive levels as well. And then the second thing that drew me to academics was that I had colleagues on the faculty that had been my teachers in med school and residency who I just admired for their clinical knowledge and skills. And it was very comforting for me that if I had a patient that overmatched me, exceeded my clinical expertise, (laughs) that I could just knock on somebody's door, get a quick curbside consult. And that probably helped affirm my my competence, helped me fill in my gaps where I didn't have the knowledge I needed to. But it was great for my confidence. And then the third reason was more of a, uh, just a fear of, taking out a loan to open up an office and not doing well from a financial standpoint because I had no business training in med school or residency. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a little bit of a safety net there for uh, going into academics as well. And again, I think the good Lord blessed me because, uh, you know, I graduated from residency in 88. In December of 1988, I was walking down the hallway in my academic office suite and my program director, who I was now a colleague in the faculty with, Dr. George Zenner, says, J.D., get your arse in here, into his <laughs> office. And I walk in, and there's a gentleman that had shoulders that were just enormous. He had a head that was the size of a watermelon, and it looked like his nose had been broken multiple times. And it turned out that he played center for the Minnesota Vikings. His uh-huh. name was Jiggs Ramsey. And he was selling disability insurance for, at that time, it was Paul Revere. And that's how I ended up getting disability insurance. Six weeks later, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. (laughs) So, I mean, again, I think the Holy Spirit kind of was looking out for me there. But that likely never would have happened if I was in private practice and didn't have somebody mentoring me, Mm -hmm. even if it were just by chance, at the right place at the right time. Um, And therefore, with my chronic illnesses can end up developing what was called a polyglandular autoimmune syndrome. I have type 1 diabetes, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, pernicious anemia, ileitis, Crohn's, which is mild. I've never had a real flare-up of that. But I ended up developing autonomic neuropathy uh, within a year of my diagnosis of the diabetes, and that's been the functionally most impairing thing for me over the years. Um, that, if you know, I ended up having a pancreas transplant, as you guys both know. But when I was on the waiting list for the transplant, a good day for me was getting out of bed. To, uh, to have been in private practice where I was paying rent on a building, paying the office staff and the nursing staff, I would have taken an absolute financial bath. So there was a, a real blessing for me there to be in academics. And I have been incredibly supported by my, my colleagues, patients, and students at both Texas Houston and at Wright State Boonshaft because they've been incredibly understanding. So when, when my office calls a patient saying they're going to have to reschedule their appointment because I'm not feeling well that day, um, a lot of patients, I think, would have said, this is getting too old. I need to find another doctor. And a couple have, and in fairness to them, deservedly so. But I'm amazed that more people didn't feel that way. Or you guys, when I miss say session in you know in in the office or clinical medicine, whatever else, you've been incredibly forgiving and supporting. 
And the same thing for the faculty who have kind of had a cover for me when I've been absent. So I've been very blessed in that regard. Probably more long-winded answer than what you want on that question. No, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We've really enjoyed listening to you talk. And you've answered this next question a little bit already. If you could give us some more specific examples or stories and memories of some of the most impactful moments of your life that have really opened your eyes and helped form and shape who you are today, both the good and the bad, just those moments for you. Yeah, I think, you know, the the people that I mentioned and all the positive memories that I talked about, I, I really, you know, mm-hmm. just, I just have wonderful experiences. And again, where, where I talked about Rachel Remen being a role model for yeah. me, I can draw joy and inspiration from much less dramatic events or encounters now than I could have back then where I really needed the, the, the major breakthrough of a diagnosis or seeing somebody beat all the odds and walk out of the hospital if you thought they weren't going to make it. I mean, that's easy to feel amazing about. But, you know, just daily interactions. And I, I would make the case that, I mean, every encounter with a patient, you make ethical decisions. So, I mean, there, there, there can be joy and responsibility that come with, with each of those, even though they, they may not be nearly as dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, the negative events or the, the, the things that I'm most ashamed of, both of these happened when I was a resident. Uh, one of them, I was an intern. It was, I don't know, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I had just literally sat down in the bed in the car room and taken one sneaker off when the pager went off and it was the emergency room. Um, I recognized the extension. And the nurse on the phone said, yep, you're going to love this one, Doc. We have a family here with four kids and the complaint is pinworms for the last six months. So I put my sneaker back on. I slammed my pager back onto my belt and I walked down to the emergency department from the call room. And in that 45-second walk, I had worked myself up into this frenzy of self-righteousness and indignation because how can a family abuse the healthcare system like this for having pinworms for six months and showing up in the emergency room? So I walk into the ER, and of course, this was before the days of electronic health records, so the, the, the clipboard, you know, the four clipboards were there, and mm-hmm. I rip them off the wall, and I can see the nurses kind of giggling, <laughs> just kind of set me off even farther. I walk into the room, and fortunately, I did one thing right, that I reached out and I shook the mother's hand and got down at eye-to-eye level with each of the four kids and shook their hand and made a little small talk. Did a little bit of history, and then through gritted teeth, I asked what I thought was the $64,000 question. So why is it that you decide to bring in your kids today for this rather than any day, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. or Saturday, 8 a.m. to noontime when our office was open. And I'm yeah. thinking I'm going to teach a point here, right? You know, yeah. And the answer she gave me absolutely humbled me and completely reoriented me. I never wanted to be in this position again. But she said, well, my husband came home drunk. He was angry. He was belligerent. He started uh, hitting me, woke the kids up. He threatened the kids, so when he passed out, I put, put the kids into the car and was driving around and realized I was about to run out of gas, and this was the only place I knew would be warm and open at this time of day. Completely shut wow. me up, completely humbled. So 
I think the, the lesson there was that I had made myself the, the focus and center of that patient encounter. And it was such a, I was so appalled and ashamed of my performance and so disappointed and upset with how it made me feel that I said, I vowed I never wanted to be in that position again. And I think that has probably been one of the greatest safeguards or checks and balances I've had. The other one was a young woman who came in uh, into an urgent care clinic that I was moonlighting as. I can't remember if I was a second or third year resident. The first experience, I was a first year resident. And she was a woman, she was complaining of dysuria and pelvic pain. And she was whimpering the whole time she was there. I, I couldn't get much of a history from her. And when I asked anything about her sexual history, she, she basically said that she was not sexually active. Hmm. Her mother who was with her, and th- this woman was probably in her early 20s, the mom who was with her said she's not sexually active. So I did a urinalysis. Um, and the lab tech says, hey, you're going to love this. There's spermatozoa in the, in the urine specimen. So I walked back into the room feeling that I was betrayed because I couldn't get a, quote, honest story from this young woman. Mm-hmm. And as I said, she was whimpering. There, there was just a disconnect there that I, I wasn't astute enough to pick up on. And it wasn't until days or weeks later that I came to the scary realization this woman had probably been a victim of sexual assault and I had completely missed it. Um, So that was the other kind of life-changing event of of something that I was ashamed of in my performance as a physician and a caregiver that I said I'd never want to do again. And the error I made there was that I judged this woman thinking that she was being dishonest or not forthright with me as opposed to kind of keeping an, an open mind and her perspective, and probably more importantly, an open heart, and really listening to what was happening, because I was troubled. I knew there was this disconnect. I just wasn't smart enough to put my finger on it. So. Wow. Sounds like you've done a lot of reflection and really gained a lot of insight from those experiences, even though they were pretty challenging to go through at the time. So for your medical students listening to this now, and maybe years from now, what wisdom would you like to pass on to them? What would you want them to know? Yeah, well, you guys know what I'm going to say a little bit here because I had touched on it earlier, but I think we all need to find that our sense of purpose, meaning, mission in medicine as a physician and in life, in whatever our roles may be as a spouse, a partner, a parent, a friend. You know, I think in medicine, we work long hours, we invest a lot. And it can be emotionally energizing and uplifting because the highs are so high. It is such a privilege and honor to serve people as Mm -hmm. a physician. But the lows can be so low and distressing that if we don't have that sense of meaning or purpose, I think that's where we're at risk of, of burning out, of becoming cynical, depressed, feeling disenfranchised. And I've yet to meet a person who describes himself or herself who who's burnt, has burned out that doesn't care deeply for what he or she does. 
So burnout is not something that comes from a lack of commitment. I would I would submit that it's the actual opposite that you're you're so committed, mm. and there's this dissonance between the level that you're investing and what you're getting out of it. And I think if we're able to keep that sense of meaning or purpose in what we do, that has been what has sustained me um, over the years. And I'm one of those people, maybe a minority, unfortunately, but I am more enthusiastic about being a physician now as an MS-39 <laughs> than I was when I started medical school in 1981. And that's despite all the, you know, the challenges and imperfections and, sure. and limitations of our healthcare system. Uh, but I, that, that, that is truly how I feel. I've not learned how to fake sincerity yet. When I do, I'm going to become successful. Mm-hmm. So. Wonderful. And then the million-dollar question that everybody always wants to know, for you personally, how would you like to be remembered years and years from now as a physician but also as a person? As a humble servant of of God and others. (laughs) That's what I'd like to have in my tombstone. Beautiful. Yeah, so I mean, so obviously, if I if, if if I get that, then mm-hmm. because I've been caring and competent, compassionate, uh, supportive, encouraging, empowering as a physician, as a person, as a friend. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely held true. So Kristen and I would now like to take a couple minutes to turn the tables and share a few moments that you've positively impacted us during medical school. Um, so you mentioned earlier you're an MS thirty nine. I remember that was one of the first things you said when you gave um, that talk. Like first year, you were teaching cardiac auscultation, and you were just such an expert up there. I don't think I've heard anyone before or since talk about how to listen to the heart with such enthusiasm and expertise and such detail. And I remember you mentioned you were at MS39, and I thought that was such a cool concept to share with students that physicians don't just finish medical school and become an expert right away. We're always continually learning. We're humans continuing to take care of humans. And I thought that just expressed so much humility that has really stuck with me. Mine's an overall reflection rather than individual stories. But I just wanted to take a minute and share that you are inspiring beyond what words can describe. You demonstrate true excellence, not only in what you do, but also in who you are. You are, you have the rare gift of stirring within others a desire for gratefulness simply through exemplifying gratefulness. You are very kind, considerate, open, honest, understanding, and of course humble, and it has been an overwhelming pleasure to learn from your example. Well, so, thank you all. So, you know, if, if I had known you were going to say that, I could have put that down as one of my, <laughs> my life before. Thank you very much. Of course, yeah, we've definitely enjoyed learning from you. So to our audience, thank you for listening today. And Dr. Donnelly, thank you for sharing your life with us in and beyond the coat. Great back at you. Thank you. We trust you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for an upcoming interview with Dr. Dean Parmalee, another giant in the Boonshaft School of Medicine. Thank you for listening. This has been Beyond the Coat, the life of a physician.